did I get the job? Absolutely not. Why not? Because you're a baby boomer and I'm a millennial. Most Gen Xers are in school during the crash. So at first they think like, so what? I am a Gen Xer. But I came to find out that actually the term Generation X, it has no meaning. How is eating meat racist? I'll gladly tell you. Looks like we've got an oppressor on our hands. Millennials and Generation Z have the Peter Pan syndrome. They don't ever want to grow up. Maybe they lost why you didn't do anything while there still was time to act. You say you love your children above all else, and yet you're stealing their future in front of their very eyes. You're going to mature and you're going to realize nothing's free, that things aren't equal, and that your utopian society you created in your mind in your youth simply is not sustainable. Okay, Boomer, listen up. Generational conflict is back. Boomers have stolen millennials' future. They've used up scarce resources while voting for austerity. For their part, millennials are self-absorbed avocado scoffers who rather complain than work and save. Where once the young rebels of the 1960s stuck it to the man, and by extension their parents' generation, today it's the turn of the young to challenge that very same 60s generation, now grown old, retired, and complacent. It's they who mortgaged our future, didn't they? This is the growing narrative of generationalism, the belief that all members of a given generation possess characteristics specific to that generation, which make it inferior or superior to another. Our turbulent times at the end of the end of history are generating new cleavages and conflicts, and the Generation War is one of the most prominent across the West. Welcome to OK Boonger, The Problem of Generations, a special five-part series by Alfe Bunga Bunga, the global politics podcast at the end of the end of history. In this third episode of the series, we look at the baby boomers, those born 1945 to 1964, what they did when they were young and what they did as they aged, who they really are and were, and the myths they weaved about themselves. In the last episode, we learned how generational consciousness grew across the 19th century, reaching a crescendo after the First World War with the so-called lost generation. But not all generations are made the same. Some are more prominent or self-aware than others. Prominent and self-aware are terms that definitely apply to the baby boomers. The boomers have typified the cultural script in the West, as told through the sequence of decades. If you hear 1960s or 1980s, you'll have a clear idea in your head of fashion, of music, of cultural affect and political inclinations. You'll have the cliches of peace, acoustic guitar and bell-bottoms, or of synthesizers, suits, and stock markets. But this story is not so much a story of generational sequence, as much as what the boomers themselves did as they passed from one phase of life to another. This is partly because it's the boomers themselves who wrote that cultural script, that succession of decades each laden with a certain idea. Moreover, the period from the 1960s onwards is precisely the era when the notion of a cultural script itself becomes important and self-reflexive that is, conscious of itself. Television, the mass medium of the age, no doubt helped. And because of an acceleration of historical change, the world did seem to change quite a bit every 10 years. 
But before we go any further, we need to ask some basic questions. What exactly was the baby boom? And what was this new cohort that entered the world after the Second World War? So the baby boomers are a really fascinating generation, I think. Jenny Bristow again, a sociologist at Canterbury Christ Church University and the author of a number of books on generations, including Baby Boomers and Generational Conflict, and most recently, The Corona Generation, co-written with her teenage daughter. They are called the baby boomers for two reasons. Uh, One, that they were a demographic baby boom that came just after the end of the Second World War. And I'll say a bit more about how they were defined that way in a minute. But they also were born into uh, the economic boom, the the, the post-war economic boom. Now, when you think about how that kind of idea, that that term came about, the, the baby boomer, Uh, It strikes you that it's very American. okay? so there was a baby boom after the Second World War in, you know, most parts of the Western world. But it took very different forms Um, in America. You had um, a big kind of increase in the number of children born, um, which was partly because obviously the the war had ended and soldiers were coming home and uh, partly because of the experience of uh, immigration from the Second World War and more people kind of coming to America. And that was like a sort of sustained bump that went on roughly for 20 years. In Britain, where arguably we have much less of an economic boom compared to America, the baby boom looked very different. So what you see is a real kind of spike in the births um, from, say, 1946 to about 1949, and then a dip. And then a bit later, you get a kind of a, a, a sort of more sustained bulge. But there were not that many more kids born in that period than would have normally been the case. It wasn't so kind of massive. And so the answer to the question of did the baby boom happen everywhere? Well, it sort of did. But I think it also took a very different demographic pattern. So it's fine to say it was a kind of, you know, international Western phenomenon. But we have to be careful because when claims are made about the size of the baby boom, for example, or the disproportionate size of the baby boomers to previous and subsequent generations, um, often what's what's happening there is the application of an American model onto other countries where the character of that demographic change is quite different. So if the demographic boom is clearly expressed in the US, does that also make the cultural narrative particularly American? was different i think in america the story of the baby boomers is is a bit more kind of rounded in the sense that on the one hand you have the the story of the you know the the kids who grew up in the 50s right and and having that sort of you know, greater affluence and 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 so on um and you also have the story of the counterculture and everything that kicked off around student campuses in the the late 60s i think in continental europe you have a slightly different story because there wasn't that much affluence when the baby boomers were were young, but you have a powerful kind of narrative of the development of the welfare state. So these are the kids who kind of grew up with uh, the welfare state being developed to sustain their future, if you like. That, that, that That's the sort of the narrative there. So you have the welfare state as opposed to massive affluence. And of course, you had the cultural component as well, the high 60s. And you do see that in, you know, in France, Italy, Britain. But of course, just as in America, you know, university campuses aren't the whole world. 
you know, the, 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 where these where the counterculture happened was in quite selected places. You have that in Britain as well. I mean, I, I mean, you could even argue that the 60s in Britain, the, the idea of it is really based on a part of London in the late 60s. You know, it wasn't generalizable to the whole country, let alone the whole of university campuses. The most salient fact about the boomers is that there are a lot of them. Helen Andrews, senior editor at the American Conservative and author of Boomers, The Men and Women Who Promised Freedom and Delivered Disaster. Which means that as they have passed through each phase of their life, they have defined America's sense of itself as they move through the life cycle. So when they were young and in their 20s, in the 1960s, America thought of itself in terms of youth. Uh, That's how we remember the 60s as a time when young people were doing young people things. And as the boomers got older, they continued to define America's sense of itself. So they were going a little bit more crazy in the 1970s. And by the 1980s, they had grown up a little, moved to the suburbs, become middle-aged. And so we think of the 80s in terms of capitalism and focusing on your careers. Uh, By the 90s, they were parents and so on and so on. You can see it actually in our sense of the drugs that define each decade. (laughs) The 1960s were the age of marijuana because they were young and didn't have a lot of money. When they had a little bit more money in the 70s to throw around, they were buying cocaine. And in the 1980s, focusing on their careers, they were taking Valium to cope with the stress. Mm -hmm. So however old the boomers have been, they have made America revolve around them. The boomers have been characterized as the me generation, suggesting narcissism. Josh Glenn, a semiotician and author, and the publisher of the site High Lowbrow, which provides a novel periodization of generations, suggests an alternative view. When I, you know, when I was reading about narcissism and then other kinds of psychological syndromes, I came across this idea of imaginative suggestibility, which is this idea of being responsive to suggestion without hypnosis. So, in other words, being able to self-hypnotize yourself. And that struck me as exactly what boomers are all about. They just completely are... Um, absorbed absolutely wholeheartedly, uh, 100% into whatever it is that they're into, and then also able to completely drop that, you know, move away from it again. So you get like the yippies turning into the yuppies or whatever, right? They can be 100% about this thing, and then the next day be 100% about another thing. There's also kind of a fantasy proneness around imaginative suggestibility, where you kind of want to frame your life in a mythical register, which I think they've done on a generational scale. They're a mythical generation, but also, you know, Characters from within the boomer generation are also tend to sort of self-mythologize. And there's kind of a hysteria proneness as well with imaginative suggestibility where a kind of tendency to emotional excess. I mean, all these things that I'm talking about make, make you think of the anti-war movement, the environmental movement, women's movement, anti-nukes, all the stuff around, um, you know, Jaws and E.T. and all these big blockbuster movies, um, movies about coming of age in that era, like Greece and American Graffiti and, Animal House, and of course, all these movies about coming of age in the 60s, like, you know, Good Morning Vietnam and Hairspray and Platoon and Born on the Fourth of July. And then kind of being prone to hysteria around whether it's Beatlemania or Woodstock or Altamont. (laughs) 
What then were the formative events that could lead to this construction of character, at least among a certain generation unit, that is, a section of a cohort that comes to represent the generation as a whole? Jeffrey Alexander, professor of sociology at Yale University, and one of those student rebels back in the 1960s. I wanted to become a lawyer and, uh, and then a politician in Los Angeles to help restructure the United States. So it was a pretty traditional you know, arc of what I was going to do. And then when I went to Harvard, I went, when I was 18, I was going to um, realize that idea. But then, and the first year of Harvard was more or less without generational disruption. Around the, the middle of 1966, everything seemed to explode. Uh, it was just like um, a break in time almost. And for the next four or five years, there was this kind of opening in history that seemed to be create a liminal experience of intense. I was intensely aware of a break with everything that the society represented with my parents, um, who I had always had a lot of affection and respect for. And the first experience of that was in terms of, you could say, sex, drugs, and rock and roll. It wasn't very political, except in an indirect sense. It was, it was about trying to experience a different life that was, you know, a kind of fused romantic experience. But a company that is alienation from the institutions like Harvard, which I had an intense reaction against at that time. And this division of the world between straight, what was called the straight world, the establishment and the world that we felt we were part of. And there was this feeling of great solidarity, different way of dressing, a different way of looking, different way of acting, different ways of greeting people. In the midst of this, I became hyper aware of I mean, my big issue, I think, was the Vietnam War. And as I became radicalized, I became politicized by virtue of the war, not really by virtue of race. That wasn't my personal experience. But then I decided, which was true, that the United States was just completely criminal in its behavior in Vietnam and that the leadership of the United States were very deceptive and misleading, and I joined demonstrations. We thought that they had led completely corrupt lives. That notion of don't trust anybody over 30, it seemed, it's laughable now, but then it seemed palpable and completely real. So my father was in advertising, and I thought, even though I still had personal affection for my father. I thought he had corrupted, sold out, that he was doing the worst, worst, worst possible thing with his life. I hated capitalism. And I also thought that the social work, and I gradually came to feel that my mother's life of amelioration and helping oppressed people was only a revolution, that she was misled. Well, what happened at the end of college is I really focused a lot on the war. I felt the United States was imperialistic. And I joined SDS, became very involved politically in the campus struggles. 
I was uh, suspended for a sit-in that disrupted a faculty meeting that was considering this thing called ROTC, which was the military training program of Harvard students in return for having them get a scholarship to the whole time, and then they'd become officers. So, I mean, these were very, in a way, terrifying experiences, uh, at least for me, because you were confronting authority very harshly. And then SDS was organized into two factions and the factions fought each other. And eventually there was a takeover of the administration building at Harvard. And then there was a giant explosion and I was elected to the steering committee of the Harvard student strike at a meeting. There were about 1,200 or 2,000 people. And that was really the peak experience. It seemed like the world had opened up. It was like a Wordsworthian or Blake. It was this apparent inversion of the rationalism and the what I felt at the time, the deep, the impersonalism, uh, the alienation. So the entire spring semester of Harvard was stopped. People were, were tie-dyeing and selling crafts in the center of the Harvard yard. And we were going to meetings every day to try to theorize the overthrow of capitalism. So it was kind of like the French commune experience. I mean, it was, it was really, um, it was beautiful. I mean, we were beside ourselves as were thousands of other young men and women at the time. In Germany, naturally, the social landscape after the war was different. Holger Nering, historian of Europe at the University of Stirling in Scotland, and an expert in the transnational history of social movements. To start with, it was first of all a world of complete distraction. So, so the German cityscape, especially if you grew up in a city, would have still shown the scars of the destruction of the uh, Second World War well into the late 1950s, if not even uh, longer than that. So this really framed some of the, of the background to that. And in connection with that, especially for those who then got involved in social movements, there was also a feeling of moral destruction and also uh, guilt, or at least vicarious guilt. So these two experiences, quite interesting how they interacted in different groups of the population, because you then have on, on one level, you have a sort of emerging hedonistic subculture that are then classified as the so-called Halbstarke or, or the sort of hooligans who basically got into with growing affluence into consumer culture. So they bought themselves uh, motorbikes or mopeds and uh, they consumed um, mostly American, but then also increasingly uh, British pop music or, or rock music, which if you listen to this today, uh, sounds very tame, but really caused huge, huge scandals. You know, why are they doing this? Why are they wasting their times like this? They're not good citizens. So you have kind of that strand. You then have another strand of a group of people, usually probably uh, slightly older, mostly actually the parents who would um, engage in uh, consumption, 
um, and essentially lead private lives. So a huge emphasis on the family uh, and privacy uh, within affluence. And this was probably the largest chunk of the population. And then you have, this is usually on the political left, but not only, and that's quite interesting, um, a group of people who actually say, neither of those approaches actually works. Um, we need to get actively uh, politically involved and actually overcome this kind of sense of both physical and moral destruction somehow. And we shouldn't be lured into um, the, uh, the kind of consumer uh, culture and we shouldn't be lulled by it. So uh, consumption perhaps, yes, but not in the sense of um, getting uh, dominated by it. Did this mean a direct generational confrontation, even within the family unit? On one level, yes, especially if you look at uh, the kind of uh, student movements of the 1960s. This is very strongly there in the rhetoric, this kind of accusation of uh, parents of having been complicit precisely because of this kind of inward-looking, consumer-oriented, private, bourgeois, sometimes educated bourgeois, so what was called a spießig. Uh, lifestyle at the time, so sort of philistine, if one were to translate basic mindset. Um, but the interesting thing is, so Dittler Siegfried, for example, has shown this in, in his great work, that within families, actually, this didn't matter that much. So, so there weren't sort of constant discussions at the dinner table. So, so the students, some of the students who still lived with their parents or would come home uh, to their parents over weekends or, or over, over the holidays, they would not necessarily seek confrontation with their parents at home. Uh, they would do this in, in public. So there was a kind of interesting disjuncture from that perspective as well. You want to protest the war? Protest it right here in Old Room Rock. What am I going to do, march around the post office? Bring the war home, isn't that the slogan? Look, they gave me this award. It's just a stupid plaque, but it means one thing. If you take a stand, people notice. If you oppose the war, right here, with all your strength, this is part of America too, you know. Read Marx. Revolutions don't begin in the countryside. We're not talking about revolution. You're not talking about revolution. Police have widened their search for the missing teenager, Meredith Laval, for her involvement in the bombing of a post office. Philip Roth certainly captured something in his depiction of the 1960s and the collapse of old authority in American Pastoral, the film adaptation from which the preceding clip was taken. However, Jenny Bristow agrees with Holger Nehring's findings that revolt did not so much happen in the home against one's parents. So what were the boomers reacting against? I don't think they were reacting against their parents. I think that's one thing, not necessarily. So I think there was a sense that they were the kind of lucky generation. You know, their parents had been the ones who'd been embroiled in the war and, and, and so on and so forth. And I think that element of it is often missed by the fact that people often pick up on the fact that the counterculture and the student radicals you know, had this slogan, never trust anyone over 30, you know, that it's it's looked at through present day eyes as being these baby boomers reacting against their parents. I don't think that they were doing that. I think what they were doing was reacting against the collapse of the norms and values that had sort of sustained society 
through the 20th century and just about managed, you know, through the Second World War and going through to the other side. So what you actually had was this younger generation just reacting against the the, the fragmentation of uh, the old way of doing things and coming along and um, really taking to its own heart, if you like, that, that sense of the need for youth, the need for novelty, the need for things to be different. So that's why in Britain... When you see the uh, late 1960s, you have you, know, you have abortion being legalised, you have homosexuality being decriminalised, you have the age of majority being lowered, you have the almost self-conscious kind of emergence of a much more what was called permissive society at that time, because the old ways of doing things no longer worked. And I think it was that young people were kind of at the head of that, that process of arguing for change. But of course, they weren't the ones passing legislation. Exactly. So, you know, it wasn't them that did it. <laughs> they didn't kind of necessarily make that change. And and when I've looked at the discussion about the baby boomers in the academic literature, so there's a, a lot of it published in the early 70s. And what's really interesting there is that the people writing about the, the counterculture and the radicals and the need for change are academics who are older. You know, they're, they're trying to change things from within the academy you know, and they're kind of reflecting on what, what the kids are doing. But it's a product of arguments that are going on within higher education at the time, rather than just, you know, what some young students happen to be doing. As the American critic and essayist Louis Menand, born 1952, argues, there are many canards about the boomer generation, but the most persistent is that the boomers were central to the social and cultural events of the 1960s. Apart from being alive, baby boomers had almost nothing to do with the 1960s. Or is it that the older boomers, say someone born in 1945, who would have been 23 in 1968, did play a part in the 1960s, but that the problem is otherwise, that the boomers may not be such a coherent generational category? This is as Josh Glenn argued back in part one, so I'm born in 1967. So people who were a little bit older than me, who were uh, being described as boomers, so people who I, whose zines I admired, who were born in 1958, let's say, didn't feel like boomers because you know they had nothing to do with any of the boomer stuff. Like when Woodstock happened, you know, what I mean, they were 10 years old. Um, they that generation really felt like they came along late for the party. You know, the boomers got all this attention on them, and then these guys still got called boomers, but they weren't boomers at all. So there's a whole cohort of, I'd say, but I, I call them the OGXs, the original generation X, and they were born from 1954 to 1963. And they were kind of um, upset and angry with their kind of older brothers and sisters or their older cousins, the boomers, for kind of taking all this space up in the culture and being saddled with that, you know, they get shoved into this generation that they really feel no connection to. But the problem of the boomers isn't just that those who did the 1960s weren't always boomers, but that the 1960s, especially 1968, have been mythologized and misremembered. Well, you know, my book was really less about what 68 was than the way it has been remembered or trivialized or banalized. Kristen Ross, professor emeritus of comparative literature at New York University and a specialist in French culture. In her book, May 68 and Its Afterlives, Ross examines the way those events have been so mythologized. I wrote it in the late 90s, and, um, and at that time, something like uh, the backdrop of the war in Algeria or 
the um, movements of decolonization in Africa, French colonies, but not only the French colonies, none of that was uh, visible as what I felt it to be the particular history and political memory of the people who were out on the streets. Algeria was the background noise of their childhood. They, uh, and, and there had been enormous labor unrest in France throughout the early 1960s as well. So both of these things uh, became, especially Algeria became a, a catalyst for French people to become conscious of what they opposed in their own society. So it was extremely important, even though uh, by, by you know, the late 1980s, it had disappeared from the map of what people could actually talk about or think about when it came to 68. It was no longer, you know, 68 by the 1980s had become nothing really but a, a kind of sexual revolution. For all that the 60s involve a lot of forgetting, Jeffrey Alexander remembers a totalizing sort of revolt. There was a feeling, a broad feeling that society was, I suppose, what you'd say a Foucauldian idea or a Frankfurt School idea, that it was totally against humanity. For me, I wasn't a Marxist yet, really. I mean, I was reading New Left Marxism. So we were against capitalism, absolutely. Uh, the buying and selling, the commodification, we were against bureaucracy, the Harvard bureaucracy. Uh, and we felt that the war machine was dominant, this insidious war-making instrument. We were just sickened every day by what was happening in Vietnam. We felt it very personally. It was, it was horrifying. And so we hated our government. And we, we talked about complicity. We felt that Harvard was complicitous, which it was in many different ways with the war. I don't think it was probably good, looking back on it, to make Harvard the enemy instead of uh, you know, the Pentagon or the US government, although we knew they were the enemy. We didn't have a clear sense of political space. So this is what we did. You know, like Freud said in Civilization and its Discontents, I mean, modern society, or maybe all society, you know, requires a tremendous level of self-control and repression. And every once in a while, there's these explosions of social um, need, psychological, social experience that defies is like a, a scream of protest, a sigh of pleasure. Most of the time, 99.9% .9 of the time, these needs are met as individuals uh, through sex, through aesthetic experiences, through reading novels and, or eating or drinking, you know, or through small groups of friends. But then once in a while, it kind of becomes societalized and is a massive experience and I think there are periods in Western history and others, I mean, sometimes it's really evil, like in the Cultural Revolution in China. I, I imagine they have the same kind of experiences as we did of, of this kind of society breaking up and you feel this massive communal experience with millions of people like you. 
and you feel like a utopia is being created where we won't have to work, we won't have to discipline or repress. We could create a new world. 68 is the symbol, the number that symbolizes this experience throughout the Western world. I would, I would characterize it like that. I think that sociologists are, and, and I mean, social scientists, even Marxist theorists, critical theorists are not, when they think of modernity, they usually think of it as simply a line of rationalization. But really, it's not like that. I mean, starting in the 1800 and then the early 1800s, the birth of romanticism then becomes part of, in a way, a dialectic, an attention inside. So it's not just that we live in this super rationalized society, which it is, but it's also that there's this romantic strain of feeling and thinking and art and many things. I mean, love, love is a big part of the life of everybody in this society. So yeah, I think that that was an intensely romantic upheaval. The story in Germany bears a certain resemblance, but with a different emphasis. Holger Nering again. So, so the first movement that probably really captured a younger generation was the movement uh, against uh, nuclear weapons for the West German army. So, so the, the movement against nuclear disarmament. There have been uh, movements against conscription and against uh, West German rearmament, as it was called, uh, before that. Uh, conscription was obviously an issue that was very live uh, for younger people because they didn't want to be uh, conscripted. Uh, but the first movement that really appealed to the younger generation in a broader scale was the protests against uh, nuclear weapons. And that was first something that was organized by the trade unions and the uh, social democratic party. So it basically started actually as, as, a, as a party, as an organized initiative. Um, but then increasingly became an independent uh, movement, uh, especially because then the party uh, abandoned that as part of its uh, reformist turn. And so uh, this was this then saw the emergence of the Easter marches. What's interesting about this is that there you can actually see this constellation that I talked about before, uh, namely a deep skepticism towards uh, the West German state uh, on, on the one hand, as, as, a, as an entity, and this goes back to the theme of destruction, physical destruction, that could basically mete out violence and, and death uh, to populations. The skepticism is really surprising if you look at opinion polls. You have, this is not just in the young uh, population, but especially pronounced in the young population, 80% basically do not trust the state with the military. It's, it's a staggering so there's kind of implicit support for this in, in the majority of the population. Um, but then on the other hand, um, also a deep skepticism towards um, this kind of uh, turn uh, to the family, uh, to privacy. You can see this very well, how the first Easter marches actually uh, campaigned because they say we are engaged citizens. So we need to, we, we cannot just sleep they made an explicit and very problematic uh, comparison with, with Nazi Germany by saying this is a similar constellation, you know, where have you been, 
um, if our children ask us, we, we cannot stand silent again. And this was very important, this kind of idea of active uh, citizenship uh, that campaigned against the state for a very individualistic notion of political involvement that was free from uh, party political or organized politics. Did the usual US-derived cliches about the 60s, about spiritual revolution, apply in West Germany? This was a very prominent strand. Uh, but I would probably not call it uh, the main strand. So this was something that was that, that clearly mattered a lot, mattered especially, uh, for example, in, in Berlin and also in Frankfurt. Um, so it's, it's very localized in a way, um, where, where you also had sort of communes who try to kind of live that hedonistic lifestyle. Um, but um, more generally, it was actually a rather pluralistic theme and there, there were different routes through the 60s. There were different routes, for example, for those on the Easter marches who, who loved listening to skiffle uh, music, to folk music, also uh, German folk music, uh, which, which was modeled on, you know, Pete Seeger, etc. Um, and, and others. That kind of uh, stream, which was, of course, also to a certain extent uh, hedonistic, but in a different way from, uh, say, the, the communes. This was more like a sort of classical uh, youth movement uh, that wanted to explore also the countryside, etc. So um, very often also organizationally within uh, Friends of Nature. And what's also forgotten and what the most recent research has actually highlighted is that um, the 1960s were also relevant for the uh, for political conservatism because this is when a new generation of uh, conservatives actually got politicized and conservatives who who were to become uh, very important in the politics of Christian democracy in the 1980s and so. Uh, they were politicized because they re reacted against the arguments made by uh, by the kind of new left, by the by the political left, and in a sense they were in a in a so there was in a sense a, an intra uh, generational split uh, that we can see, which is only now coming into view, and they were of course uh, less. Um, happy to engage with uh, sort of hippies, with folk music, uh, with communal living, uh, but they would essentially take a sort of an ideal of citizenship that was far more restrained, presented itself as extremely rational and basically uh, condemned uh, protests, uh, you know, riotous or rowdy protests on the street. Although, of course, the interesting thing is that they themselves did that by by staging protests or by provoking protests. The French 1968 was, of course, one of the most important. Beyond the mythology, what was it actually about? Kristen Ross. May 68 was the largest mass movement of modern French history, and it was also the most significant labor uh, movement. Uh, it was a general strike. It, um, it was a movement that extended throughout France to every town, every professional sector, shipbuilders, you know, grocery clerks, uh, every age group, every region of the country. And when you, you know, when you 
are able to, to think about it and perceive it that way, then you see very clearly the way in which the memory of uh, 68 got sort of hijacked by a number of so-called student leaders who transformed themselves into um, official memory custodians. And they were the ones that the media went to every time a commemoration uh, of, of the event took place. And the same people were interviewed year after year after year. And it was my frustration with that kind of reductionism that made me want to write the book. The whole uh, attempt to unite the uh, opposition to the reigning ideology, the political ideology in the country with uh, workers' movement is what makes France and Italy pretty special because they, you know, for example, if you look at the UK or the US or even Germany, the counterculture was far more important than it was in France. Uh, you could, in the UK, you could become politicized by coming through the back door of the drug scene or the music scene or, or, or um, aspects like that. Whereas in France, those kind of countercultural elements came much later, they were far less significant and they, they generally represented something more like the waning of political militancy rather than a way to, uh, for a young person to become politicized. There's been a tendency to, I think, to kind of Americanize the memory of French May. And that has to do with precisely emphasizing certain kinds of countercultural elements. So who were the protagonists of May 68 in France? Well, by the time I was writing my book, the, the, uh, the cast of characters had gotten reduced to really just a very, very few people. They were all Parisian, they were all students, and they were all, you know, uh, located in a couple of university settings. Um, and at the time, when I was uh, doing my research, I made a, a kind of a prediction that at some point, one of these, you know, leaders like Daniel Cohn-Bendit, who is, of course, you know, became the sort of icon of French May, that we would begin to realize that what he was about or himself as a figure of 68, we would, we would recognize that he was, in fact, far less important than, say, Bernard Lambert, who was a, a radical farmer in Nantes, and that, in fact, what occurred in Nantes in 1968, where they actually established an alternative city government made up of a commune with the farmers producing the food, the, the, the workers on strike, and the students, you know, a three-way, I mean, three different social agents working together to, to take care of their daily life. That this was far more important, actually, something like that, a kind of reawakening of the commune form was uh, far more significant than, than what was occurring in the streets of Paris. Uh, and I say that especially now, because if you look at some, uh, a, a very significant social movement, contemporary one in France, like the Zad at Notre-Dame-des-Landes, where 
once again, it's it's working with the the tradition of, of radicalized agriculture, which you have in the in the southwest and the northwest in in France, in Brittany, and Normandy, that these um, you know that tradition, which fed into what happened for them and what they did in '68, has actually you know produced something that you know there are continuities now with with the movements to uh, that are primarily ecological, you know, now to, and having to do with, you know, food production, radical agriculture. Um, I find this to be far more significant than anything that got encompassed under the name of the student movement. Young workers who were out on the street and out on strike were constantly described in the media as the students. <laughs> so you, you did have young workers, of course, and the young workers tended to be more radical than the older. Not always, but, you know, because certainly older workers were out on strike as well and were, um, you know, the, their history, as I mentioned, goes back to, you know, mining strikes and uh, shipbuilder strikes in the early 60s. Or even if you think about the peace movement, something like the fact that, to my mind, the one element that unites 60s radicalism globally is one word, Vietnam. And in any country where you go go and look at the early peace movement and how that developed into a, such a major thing in the in 68 that was completely intergenerational you know you had a lot of uh, older people you had a, a big mix of people who were concerned primarily with american imperialism and the war in vietnam I mean, there was an enormous anxiety that was generated. There was a panic in the elite when you have anonymous people out in the streets, you know, seizing the streets. It generates a lot of anxiety. And when that happens, people leap towards these cliches and these kinds of ideas like youth rebelling. Well, it doesn't explain very much why then, not, you know, why not now, why, you know, it doesn't say anything really. Prise d'assaut par les CRS, les barricades brûlent. Derrière chacune d'elles, les étudiants résistent avec tout l'acharnement de leur jeunesse et de leur conviction. C'est une véritable bataille qui va durer quatre heures. Les grenades lacrymogènes dont on parlera longtemps explosent. Et tout au long de la nuit, les secours aux blessés poseront un grave problème. So the reality of the 1960s revolt has been misunderstood in many dimensions. Its participants, as we've seen, weren't all part of the baby boom generation themselves. Nor were all boomers involved in the protest movements. Moreover, the radical movements of the age weren't all rebelling in the name of youth per se. Today's cultural narrative increasingly blames the boomers for their recklessness, tying 1968 to a whole raft of social transformations that came after from rampant consumerism to environmentalism, and from a satiated conservatism to what is today called woke. But rather than opt for the easy, facile course of blaming the boomers for things that exist today that we don't like, according to whatever our prejudices may be, 
let's look in more detail at what the consequences of 1968 actually were, and what the radical boomers went on to be. First, in Germany. So you have, of course, some kind of case studies in, in the form of uh, very famous uh, 68ers who then had political careers such as uh, Joschka Fischer, former German foreign minister, but then also uh, hans Otto Schilly, uh, who was the interior minister, then both in the Schröder government in the 1990s. Holger Nering again. And the transformation is actually is, is quite staggering. Uh, already if you actually look at the style of dress. Um, so um, Fischer in the 1980s still insisted of going into the plenary of the Hessen uh, parliament uh, with his sneakers and his jeans. And he then turned up in the 1990s uh, with a three-piece suit. And in a sense, Chile is, is the same thing. And Chile was actually one of the most hardcore home secretaries you could get. Whereas in um, the... Uh, in the 1970s, he uh, defended left-wing terrorists against the German state. And in a sense, what unites this is actually is this concern with, with the German state, with, with uh, individual activism. And to some extent, actually at the core, they remained uh, true to themselves in that sense. But of course, um, the, the uh, surrounding uh, environment changed. And the influence, especially of 1968 on the emergence of uh, feminism in, in West Germany as a, as a political movement and also in the way in which it got embedded into especially social democratic policies, but then also uh, green policies, the emergence of the Green Party and of environmentalism uh, cannot really be understood uh, without reference to 1968 and the kind of fundamental uh, liberalization and politicization of uh, society at that time. There was, of course, a backlash in the 1970s, but what's really remarkable, if uh, you think about it, is that now uh, we are talking about Christian Democratic Green uh, Coalition. And if you had told anyone in the, uh, when the Green Party was founded in the late 70s, early 80s, that this would happen, people would have uh, basically laughed you off the field. <laughs> said, you know, this is, you know, going to happen in a million years. It's never going to happen because the socio-cultural differences, uh, ideological differences, were just too vast. Was this growing social liberalism that then became institutionalized a victory for social movements, or their defeat? Was the kernel of a later neoliberalism always present in those movements? I would probably tend towards the latter idea, so the one that this was uh, already present. Uh, around um, in, in the 60s, because there is quite a structural similarity between uh, the sort of grassroots organizing, uh, bottom-up protests, hedonism um, of some of the ideologies around 68 uh, that then turns into a kind of neoliberal uh, dogma of, of self-improvement later on, especially from the 1990s onwards. So there is a sort of uh, structural similarity between them. Um, the interesting thing is, though, that it's not quite as simple because, of course, in 68, uh, there was a whole ideology and whole different practices circulated around that, that tied this into broadly left-wing and socialist and socially critical ideas. And that's, in a sense, the difference. And something happens at some point for some people in the meantime uh, that, that gets rid of the socially critical uh, ideas. 
so Christian Ross has argued this for France, and I think we can see this partly also uh, for West Germany. It has to do with the emergence of the concept of generation in interpreting uh, 1968, uh, because that takes some of the radicalism out of it and turns this into a sort of community or moral uh, movement, and uh, but but no longer into a political movement that was actually fighting for. Uh, political ideas and for political representation of issues that had so far been neglected. And so this is kind of one strand. And then the other thing to notice is that there's a huge diversity of different approaches. So, so you do have um, some people, some 68 is still around who are actually still living in, in the kind of communal lifestyle that they championed um, in uh, the, the 1960s, clearly a minority. There are others who became sort of prof professional protesters and protest organizers um, or who got involved in some sort of subcultural or countercultural uh, publishing or organizing. Um, they, many of them have, have died in the meantime, but uh, some of them are still around. But then there are also some who've re received pretty... Um, good positions now as professors, many of them retired, uh, but they are likely to be the most critical um, of uh, the kind of turn towards con consumer capitalism. Um, so there's just been a new, uh, it's a sort of experimental uh, novel that's come out by Heinz Bude and two others who were involved in squatting in West Berlin in the 1980s and who came out of the 68 movement. And they are now looking around saying it's all going downhill because there's no one who believes in this anymore. And so this is, this is kind of, it's very interesting uh, because you have basically all these different positions there, so there's no no sort of generational necessity in it, and that goes to the core, of course, of the concept of generation, because you do need to have something that ties it together, mm -hmm. and that that has gone. So you could say the boomers really cast a shadow on subsequent generations. Yes, and also some on, and also previous generations, because for example, Dirk Moses has made the important point that uh, to some extent the 45ers. So the generation that was born in the 1920s was actually much more foundational to what happened in the Federal Republic than uh, the 68ers. Um, of course, you can then kind of have a competition between generations, but in a sense, 68 was probably the last generational moment in, in West Germany. Although I think uh, 1989 was certainly uh, extremely important for uh, for East Germans, uh, obviously, as a unifying moment. But I think for West Germans, 1989, depending on what where you lived, so if you lived, for example, in Southwest Germany, uh, if you uh, did not have any personal relationships, family connections to East Germany, 1989-90 might have been a sort of monumental world historical event, but not a, a generationally uh, defining issue. We'll return to the experience of that 1989 generation, Generation X, or the end of history generation, in part four of this series. For now, though, it's worth asking what happened when West Germans who had experienced the Western 68 encountered those from the East who had not. 
They did have a radically different experience of the 1960s in the sense that uh, they lived in a dictatorship at the time. So everything they did by way of consumption, by way of organizing, independent of what uh, the party state wanted them to do, was automatically politicized. So uh, whereas in Germany, we could see a sort of relaxation of that kind of policing of behavior, also private behavior, consumer behavior, uh, in the GDR, this remained intact. So they had to devise ways and means uh, around that and had to find sort of uh, little niches. So historians have uh, spoke, uh, spoken about here the, the niche society of the GDR, uh, where they could basically practice these kinds of things. And in, indeed, they did. Um, but they did this in, in very different ways. Um, and uh, they, they therefore had very different uh, experiences, very different co cultural reference points, uh, and so on and so forth. And in fact, contacts did exist. Uh, there was also a very small East Berlin 1968. There's been some research on this now, but they, they didn't understand each other very well precisely because of this uh, different issue of uh, to do with uh, with a completely different political regimes ultimately what made the 68 generation in germany and what distinguished it from the uk the us or indeed france the the focus on grassroots organizing in combination with a very deep skepticism of organized party politics. I think this is probably, uh, if we are looking at the political left, this is probably one of the most important things uh, which we cannot see in, in other countries. Because what's really remarkable is that none of the 68ers in, in West Germany, not, not the big names, but also not on a small scale, they weren't just reintegrated into social democracy or into some then moved back into, into the sort of communist milieu. There was then, again, a sort of attempt at building a communist party uh, in West Germany. Uh, but many ended up in sort of little grouplets, you know, socialist, Maoist, um, some of them concerned with human rights, uh, some of them then specifically with the women's movement. And... Um, they were basically, in a sense, uh, lost for party politics at that moment. And it's then the Green Party that creates that space again, because they, they create themselves on a different level where organizations don't matter that much. And I think we can't see this uh, to that extent in France or in Italy, and certainly not in, in the United States. And um, that kind of makes... West Germany, I mean, it's always difficult to talk about uniqueness, but I think this is pretty unique because in, in Britain, for example, 68ers would just continue to get engaged within, uh, say, the, the Labour Party or the, the Communist Party. And, and that was fine. Whereas in a sense, the, the really striking thing is that to some extent, uh, Willy Brandt, when, when he was the Chancellor, said we need to dare more democracy is his attempt to bring uh, these groups back into social democratic politics, which is where many of them had originally come from, that attempt actually fails. 
And the experiences around 1968 had a lot to do with it because it was partly a social democratic state that then crushed their attempts to find their individual self-fulfillment. Meanwhile, in France... It's also not only youth revolting, but also uh, the development of an entire genre uh, that I found almost comical in its ubiquity. Kristen Ross again. As the certain student leaders entered into the careers of their choice, which had largely had to do with the media, they were very much oriented towards, you know, publishing, towards journalism, towards establishing themselves. And as they did so, they there was a kind of a rite of passage whereby they would then apologize for their former radicalism and at the same time use that radicalism as a kind of a ticket towards uh, a certain kind of publicity while they were denying it. It's at that point that the trope of generation as a kind of marketing concept first and foremost, but also as a way to avoid looking like they were the turncoats that they were, they generalized their own experiences into a, you know, a, a larger category, you know, the worldwide generation of, of naive, uh, we were naive, we were idealistic, and, and we made our mistakes, but now we've spun our errors into gold. And they literally did spin their <laughs> uh, errors into gold in a lot of cases. I mean, they had very nice careers. Voilà, ben nous les jeunes, nous les blousons noirs, qu'est-ce qu'on dit Ben on dit fuck le système. Sauf que quand t'es pote avec le président, ben tu peux plus trop le fucker le système. La révolution sexuelle, c'est super. Je viens d'ailleurs d'honorer douce suédoise à la Sorbonne. So was 68 always the founding of a new capitalist spirit, or was its real meaning traduced? Those two stories that you've just uh, encapsulated are are the version of, of 68 that appeared in really that was constructed very carefully in time for the 20th anniversary in the, in the late 80s and the late 80s now you got to remember this is this is the this is the 1980s so they had to create a version of 68 that looked that way and in effect by 1988 68 had become its own opposite there was a there was a neoliberal 68 that was the dominant uh, view. And it still is very much uh, with us. You know, I was invited to um, the uh, Elysee Palace in 2018 and Macron, he wrote to me and he said, what they, the, they said they wanted to celebrate 68 throughout the entire year. So I wrote back and I said, what precisely do you wanna celebrate? And he said, well, we want to celebrate the end of illusion. <laughs> and he, and, and what else? He, we wanted the, you know, the, we wanted to celebrate the modernization of France, the end of illusion, the end of utopia. And he went through one by one, all of the various cliches that uh, I had written about in my book. And I said, I wrote back and I said, well, in that case, you don't need me. I mean, just read my book and you've just recapitulated the official version of 68 that was that was really came into being in the 1980s. And um, 
I received the most violent, uh, I have to say that I received a very violent response, in a, you know, saying I would never be invited again. <laughs> and that they, never, that they had made a mistake inviting me in the first place. And so he decided instead to commemorate the end of World War One, which he thought was a very safe topic. So he went out to these small towns in Northern France where he was met by the Gilets Jaunes. So it didn't really work out. Kristen Ross has written that the official version of 68 tells the story of family or generational drama stripped of overt political dimensions, a transformation of lifestyles that modernized France, changing it from an authoritarian bourgeois state to a new liberal modern financier bourgeoisie. How was this narrative constructed? For one thing, to you know, reify the, the actors into something called students, precisely at the time when students were refusing to study or to think in terms of student interests, you know, what, 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 the, what the students in, who participated in 68 in France were doing is posing a, a far more general kind of crisis than, you know, their own interests, particular interests at the university or, you know. So I saw what was happening as a real crisis in, in functionalism. You know, students stopped studying, workers stopped working, everyone stopped doing what they were supposed to be doing. There was a specific pleasure, I think, of those weeks and, and months had to do with a kind of overcoming of social segregation that was so enormous and uh, strong in France, you know, I mean, I always go back to Henri Lefebvre claimed that 68 happened in, in France because Nanterre students, when they got off the subway, they had to walk through these Algerian slums to get to class. And simply that kind of, of um, meeting of two worlds uh, where then you had those students going back and uh, with those Algerian workers talking to them about the Vietnam War, you know. Uh, so meetings of that kind that took place that, that represented sort of disjunctions between one's political subjectivity and one's social group so that you had a, a, a real kind of a mixing that had never happened in that way. Um, so I'm trying to describe really a relational subjectivity that was was what 68 was about between social groups that had been very segregated. And, and that had everything to do with, you know, again, not assuming uh, a certain kind of expertise about who, who spoke for whom or who, you know, who, who had the, uh, the ability to characterize what was going on. As the proceeding attests to, there is a debate today as to whether that which followed on from the 1960s, say the yuppies of the 1980s or the humanitarian wars of the 1990s and 2000s, or wokeness today, was actually the development of the inner logic of the 60s, or not. Some hold that it wasn't, 
that the ensuing new spirit of capitalism, otherwise called neoliberalism, or maybe the Californian ideology, basically your boss not wearing a tie, your workplace having a wellness center, and your personal life being increasingly driven by notions of productivity, that that had nothing to do with the 1960s. This side in the debate holds that the ensuing Californian ideology, that is, capitalist rationalization combined with countercultural ethics, was a total travesty of what was demanded on the streets back then. The hippies aren't responsible for neoliberalism. Others hold the opposite view, that the 1960s revolt was always necessarily going to lead to postmodernism, narcissism, hypercommodification, and so on. The hippies were just yuppies and wokes avant la lettre. Maybe, but to answer the question, it's better to set out the terms more clearly. If the 1960s was all about a change in values, a reflection of a new generational consciousness, without any structural transformation or change in the balance of class forces in favor of labor, then of course it would lead to nothing more than a renovation of capitalism. Of course capital would recuperate these values for its own purposes, abandoning patriarchy, tradition and order, in favor of equality, individualism and flexibility. However, that may not be all that the 1960s were about. Indeed, there were other important things going on around the world. Mass strikes, anti-colonial movements, revolutionary politics. These were undoubtedly defeated, while the rebels in favor of a new ethos won, and history is written by the victors. So what has come to stand for the 1960s in popular memory is middle-class students in Paris mounting the barricades in the name of Eros, or middle-class students at Ivy League smoking pot. Not to mention the way the 1960s radicals degenerated in the following decade. Dress up! I will that we uns was anziehen. Hey, was is das für eine scheiß repressive Truppe hier? Sexuelle Befragung und antiimperialistischer Kampf gehören zusammen, verstehst du? Das kann ich doch gar nicht verstehen, Baby. <lacht> Ficken und Schießen sind ein Ding! <lacht> Fucking and shooting are the same. worth recalling that this is a debate that exists beyond Western Europe and North America. The Brazilian literary theorist Roberto Schwartz, born 1938, wrote on the de-radicalization of the 60s generation. The major socio-political successes of the resistance generation had its price. As it occupied new positions, it shed its earlier convictions, either due to realism, believing those earlier convictions to be obsolete and that they did not apply to the new moment, or concluding that they were always incorrect, or even just abandoning their convictions due to simple opportunism. The left's successes ended up being personal and generational, rather than being a success of its ideas. These it gradually discarded. Altogether, it constitutes something like a failure within a triumph, or rather, a triumph within failure. Perhaps it could be said that part of the left's ideology demonstrated itself to be surprisingly suited to the needs of capital, those exhibiting this tendency are so numerous and, moreover, spread all over the world that simple moral condemnation is unable to really grasp the scale of the problem. It seems then that generational thinking has ended up having more impact than the specific politics of the new left. A generation that had great dreams ended up defending the very limited politics of today. Moreover, generational thinking may actually be complicit with indeed partially responsible for, the limited politics of today. So, after all that, who are the boomers? How can we classify this generation in retrospect? 
just ask yourself who the most prominent world leaders who are baby boomers have been. Helen Andrews. The top two, I would say, are Bill Clinton and Tony Blair. They are the boomers' most prominent contribution to the ranks of world leaders. And Bill Clinton and Tony Blair were around in the 1960s, and they were in many ways shaped by the 1960s and rock culture uh, and the protests of those times. But they exercised power in the 1990s. And it's important to put those decades next to each other because the record that these neoliberal triangulators amassed in the 1990s was rather contrary to their idealistic uh, vocalizations back in the 60s. That was a time when they made their peace with capitalism and corporate America and things like that. So they sold out without admitting ever that they sold out. And so it's important to put the 1960s, which is what the boomers would like us to think about, next to the 1990s when they were actually in power. The boomers are a perfect combination of idealism on one hand and narcissism and self-indulgence on the other in ways that are sometimes difficult to disentangle from each other. And that's the California ideology in a nutshell. And it's visible even in very superficial things. The most obvious difference between California and the East Coast in the 1980s, if you were a businessman and had a meeting in New York and then a meeting in San Francisco, would be the way that everyone was dressed. Out in California, casual wear was very much the the vogue and people from New York taking meetings out there were in many ways shocked to find these uh, West Coast business titans and engineers and and Silicon Valley heroes dressed in t-shirt and jeans. Um, But that has of course since come to dominate every American workplace. And one of the reasons why is that workers are working longer hours. The whole idea that a white collar worker would only come to the office for nine to five and at five o'clock he would be able to go home and leave work behind, that's no longer the way most offices are. So because employers are putting more demands on their workers, they figure, well, if I'm gonna be keeping you here till 10 o'clock, I suppose I should let you dress comfortably. So that's a great example of the California laid back ideology having a flip side that's disempowering workers rather than empowering them. And Steve Jobs is a perfect example of that. He was on the one hand, genuinely a hippie and an individualist and his time in India did shape his business philosophy. We have a computer industry today focused on individual users and a computer in everybody's lap because that's the way Steve Jobs wanted it to be. He didn't want an IBM dominated mainframe model where there was one computer in every office and everybody applied for time on it. But it has also led to the always on workplace. And that too is the way that Steve Jobs saw his business. Um, they, you know, the, if you worked at Apple, he made you there, made you be at the office for 60, 70 hours a week. That was, you know, as a baseline, even not during crunch time. So that's, that's Steve Jobs. He's both sides of the coin in one human being, as is so often the case. As he got sicker, how did that play out? 
Well, you know, he, he didn't just never get, you know, he got experience. He had lots of ups and downs, and uh, I found that he just got more and more emotional and intimate. If you look up, he'd be crying. He would be crying about how Lee Cloud had done a beautiful proposal for an advertisement when he did with a different hands. That emotionalism really struck me. And it also, I mean, the point of any biography is you want to tie personality to product. You want to tie, you know, the way that the person was as a human to what he did in life. And that was such an easy link to make because his deep romantic emotional streak is reflected in the products he made the company he built. So for Helen Andrews, how can the boomers essentially be characterized? The running theme of the baby boomers and their record in every sphere of society has been the destruction of institutions because institutions are contrary to the boomers' central philosophy, which is that individual choice is the greatest and most important thing. And institutions constrain individual choice. That's the point of having an institution. The trouble is that the boomers knocked down all of these institutions on the grounds that they were constricting their choices, and the result has not been liberation, but has been just absolute chaos. The institutions the boomers sought to destroy also encompassed the old cultural elitism, and this had important consequences for how this generation saw and used media. When television was first popularized, in the 1950s, there were a lot of doomsayers, including people like T.S. Eliot, who said that it would be the collapse of civilization if this medium came to dominate our culture. And at the time, most people assumed that the doomsayers were just fuddy-duddies. I mean, T.S. Eliot, he was probably just being a snob, right? Well, in his case, he probably was. But we are now in a position to look back and check whose predictions have been confirmed by experience. The optimists who thought television would be a great democratizing force, bringing opera into every home on Sunday nights or whatever, or the doomsayers who thought that it would replace serious contemplation with essentially the methods of advertising. That is flash and lowest common denominator appeals uh, and things like that. Looking around, I think the doomsayers have been pretty well proven right. I think that people's attention spans have collapsed. I see people my age who failed to receive anything like a basic education. And it's because they are accustomed to the habits of mind formed by the medium of television. And now, of course, with social media and screens and the internet, that has just been accelerated. But it's all really an extrapolation of the original revolution and the original shift to visual media, which took place with television. That's the revolution that was up there on par with the invention of the printing press.
people today don't really understand how resistant the academy used to be to the study of pop culture. I know someone who is a biographer of pop culture figures on the order of Marilyn Monroe, Hollywood stars, people like that. And he recalls that getting a biography of such a pop culture figure published by an academic press before the 1990s would have been unthinkable. That would not have been the kind of book that an academic press would be at all interested in. And an academic professor trying to get tenure somewhere who devoted himself or herself to the study of Hollywood or things like that, especially in an English department, ostensibly devoted to literature and the highest works of mankind, would have been seen as dabbling in something beneath their dignity. Camille Paglia, uh, not quite single-handedly, but certainly very energetically overturned that fuddy-duddy-ish prejudice against academic study of pop culture. And her work on pop culture is actually quite intelligent. And I advise everybody to go read it. It's great stuff. Because Paglia herself has a PhD from Yale and knows the Western canon backwards and forwards. However, academics who are more my age, millennial age academics, came up at a time when they were not given the grounding that Camille Paglia has. Uh, and even when, they, even when they get their PhDs from Ivy League schools, they do not come away from those years of study with the mastery of the Western canon that Paglia had. They know pop culture and nothing else, which is why their work is not nearly as worth reading as hers is. And it was the boomers who decided that their pop culture ephemera was right up there with the greatest works. They think the Beatles are as good as Beethoven. You can almost get away with that if you are a baby boomer and have one foot in the pre-boomer era. But I think they, seeing the consequences of that revolution and the elevation of pop culture, they have been shocked. This cultural flattening was once imbued with a radical sheen before it became our total reality. Has the left actually gained anything for its questionable successes in this realm? Everybody thinks of the baby boomers as the most left-wing generation in American history. And in some ways that's true, but in other ways it would be more accurate to say that the legacy of the baby boomers in politics has been the destruction of any authentic left. The reason why the 1960s activists called themselves the new left was because they hated and wanted to replace the old left. That meant people who advocated on behalf of workers. That meant union leaders. The new left, the 60s people, the boomers, thought that those union activists and those uh, advocates for workers were dinosaurs. Uh, the hinge point in American politics was the 1972 Democratic Convention and the new McGovern Commission rules, which essentially caused identity politics and uh, niche interests and minority activism, feminism, um, things, civil rights activism, things like that, to replace the old pro-worker kind. Uh, and so... That's really, we're all still living in the aftershocks of that 1972 convention as identity politics has come more and more to dominate the ostensibly left-wing party 
in the United States. And it's something you see in all the Western democracies. All of the social democratic left-wing parties have now come to be rather curiously dominated by people with college degrees rather than without them, which has left working class people who don't have college degrees somewhat politically homeless. So that's the real record of the baby boomers. And it does lead to polarization because that's the consequence of this new left style of politics, which again is transformational rather than transactional. The contemporary world is clearly not what the new left had intended to create. But then what actually happened to its more romantic aspirations? I think there's different ways that people think about it. Some people think that was defeated and over, or that right-wing people think it was nihilism, of course, and just, you know, a horrible thing. I completely disagree with that. Jeffrey Alexander. I mean, I think two, two related things happened. One, of course, the utopian and revolutionary possibilities were denied. I don't think it's possible to actually institutionalize the romantic imagination through any kind of social system, socialism, communism, anything. I mean, yes, you could have, we could have made, not, we, we couldn't have, but there could have been a revolution perhaps Maybe there was almost one in France because they had the Communist Party and the working classes. But after 10 years, it wouldn't be this beautiful utopia anymore. It would be a, a more egalitarian, perhaps, oh, perhaps also a more repressive social system. But I mean, I think all of us felt a massive disappointment and confusion some people went into transcendental meditation and Eastern religion, uh, became mystics. Other people became neoconservatives. I knew people then who became extreme right-wing ideologues who have continued to influence the United States. But I think for a lot of us, the romanticism and the sense of justice and moral outrage against uh, domination it kind of uh, metabolized into a different understanding of authority in the, quote, real world. It metabolized into a sense that we wanted still to create an inclusive, anti-macho, anti-chauvinist, anti-racist kind of, you know, national or global community that would have much more intense experiences of solidarity and brotherhood and sisterhood. And I believe that this group had, we had a long march through the institutions of the United States and other Western societies. And I think that the US became, I mean, it always was, but it became intensely polarized over the last 50 years between our generation well, my part of our generation and the backlash, which was also part of my generation, which I didn't see at the time. I've read much more about it since then. So I think that's what's continued. And Trump is, you know, Trump is my age. He's a year older than me. He hated what was going on with, with people like me. 
we had to abandon the utopian expectations of a completely different kind of society. I believe that we carried through a new understanding of gender, race, uh, and authority. We changed the way we brought up our children. We changed the way we thought of organizations. The baby boomers are now somewhere between 57 and 76 years old. Whether the boomers' revolt was defeated or whether it ironically succeeded, because its values were always capitalist values, depends on how you characterize that revolt in the first place. Do you place emphasis on its narcissistic individualism, as Helen Andrews does, or on its collective resistance to functionalism, as Kristen Ross does? Either way, the loss of the optimistic spirit that the boomers wielded should be lamented. The unedifying battle between millennials and boomers today gives voice to a society whose horizons are much more restricted and where generational conflict stands in for competing visions of the future rooted in dreams of freedom. Where previous generational cleavages were about values and outlook, today they seem perverted, degenerated forms of class division, of struggles over limited resources. Millennials blame boomers for having had access to a looser property market, while boomers admonish millennials for not saving. Is this not something of a middle-class debate, about middle-class kids not having what they felt they were entitled to? This conflict is also incredibly backward-looking. It should be stated that the 1960s weren't all that great. After all, the radicals of that era were pretty clear in their denunciations. So it's a shame that that period could appear to us now as some sort of utopia. How should we look back to the 60s generation then? And why do millennials hate boomers? I guess there's the feeling that we have taken up too much of the oxygen in the room, that we're whiners, that we are too self-indulgent. I don't know. I mean, I think I have two sons who are 37 and 40. So I, I see that they've lived a very different life. And I've been fascinated by it. They've never had the experiences of utopian romanticism. But they have moral occupations and they are responsible, et cetera, et cetera. I have the feeling, yes, that they're trying to avoid what they see as the excesses of my generation. And I think that's probably a good idea, given the limited possibilities that are available to them. So maybe millennials want to avoid the boomers' excesses. But at the same time, they seem keen to repeat some of that experience. It first struck me how much the millennials had reduced the boomer mindset when I noticed back in high school that the rebellious kids in my class, when they were smoking cigarettes behind the gym, if you looked at their jackets and messenger bags, the patches that they had celebrated bands like Pink Floyd and Black Sabbath. So the millennials who were trying most to rebel against their parents were still listening to their parents' music. And that's, I think, a psychological fact is the people who most hate their parents and rail against them who end up turning into them. And you certainly see that with millennials. I was writing the finishing touches on my book manuscript over this last summer as I was watching cities across America burn down. And it was very obvious to me, I think not just because I was working on a book about baby boomers at the time, but just obvious that the millennials and the Antifa activists on the street were trying to have their own 1968. And why not? We have been taught, the millennial generation, by our baby boomer history teachers that America was a terrible, horrible place until the 1960s and that the 1960s were the summit 
of American politics. America has never been better than it was in the summer of 1968, according to every, uh, according to the history that we were taught. So it's natural that we should want to replicate that kind of politics. Even on college campuses, you see so many students who think, you know, you haven't really had the college experience unless you've had a candlelight vigil on the campus quad for something. It doesn't really matter. <laughs> you know, send somebody to search the internet to find an issue that's worth protesting about. The important thing is to have a protest because that's part of what going to college means. And that's, that's the aspect of it that annoys me the most. The millennials have inherited the boomers same style of politics, the boomers same issues, feminism, civil rights, things like that. But for them, it's more about protest for protest's sake than any actual investment in changing the world. So as all secondhand things are, the millennials boomerized politics is all kind of superficial. trying to characterize how the boomers are portrayed, Jenny Bristow analyzed the media discourse, finding that the boomers are seen as alternately lucky, affluent, larger than life, selfish, and reckless. The boomers are described as lucky, and that I think is kind of significant because I suppose it's quite it's true in a way. They were born after the war rather than during the war. They came of age in the post-war boom. They had the welfare state being developed. It was a time of great optimism. And so describing the boomers as lucky um, is a way of trying to kind of capture that sense of, of optimism. Now, <laughs> the problem with it is, is it's historically stupid because it kind of then forgets that after the 60s, you had the 70s. It forgets about the Cuban Missile Crisis. It forgets about you know, the kind of quite difficult experience of the 80s. I mean, there were lots of things that the baby boomer generation went through that you wouldn't necessarily think were great or lucky, but they did at least have that, that, that sense of um, optimism. Uh, they talked about as large. Uh, well, that's true um, demographically, but as I said earlier, that it's important to note that there are differences between countries in terms of the size of the actual baby boom. The reason why the baby boomers are talked about as being large and as being problematically large comes back to that question of what people are trying to do when they blame baby boomers for social problems. And what they're trying to do by focusing on the baby boomers' size is largely one thing, which is that they are preoccupied with the problems of an ageing society. And in particular, it's not even that they're talking about demographic ageing properly. There's just a fear of what would happen when you have a lot of people reaching retirement age and needing to have pensions, have health care, and so on. So... Yeah, the pressure, the pressure was increasing numbers of pensioners on these days. And the, the kind of dream that was around in the pensions policy community was whether there was an affordable level of a basic state pension that would get people, that would significantly reduce means testing, it wouldn't completely eliminate it, but would significantly reduce it. And of course, eventually, Steve This notion of you know, the, the problem of the baby boomers being a large generation is really kind of informed by this mindset that assumes that society's resources are just in a, a finite pot, right? And there's only so much to go around. 
um, and that they're taking more than their fair share. So I think it's a very limited kind of social vision and misses other important considerations, like the fact that the uh, the baby boomers, through being large, actually did contribute a great deal of wealth to society. And I mean, interestingly enough, when the baby boomers were born, the demographic assumption was that it would be a real problem for them because they would be competing over scarce resources. And then, of course, because the economy doesn't work like that, you had this kind of boom. And so then it was like, that was fine. But then there became a new argument that the problem was that there were so many of them, they were taking resources away from the younger generations. So it's a promiscuous argument that actually doesn't stack up. Selfish is interesting. I think this reflects two things, partly that it reflects the kind of sense of sort of individualism associated with the 60s, which was obviously there and was bound up with the development of this permissive society where people were given kind of license and also kind of responsibility to make their decisions about their own individual lives in a much more kind of free way. But then the, the other side to the selfish insult that's held against the baby boomers is this idea that they just went and did that. They went and created a nice life for themselves and they didn't save anything for the future, right? So they they didn't protect the welfare state in Britain or that they bought these houses and then they these houses are worth a lot of money and now they're living in them and that's all terrible and that they monopolised public policy for their own interests. Now, again... When you look at what happened historically, this this actually doesn't make sense because this demographic of people, they were there by an accident of birth. They did what they were told. You know, they got jobs, they took out pension schemes, they bought houses. That's what people told them to do. And then it's other kind of broader factors to do with the problems of public policy and the economy that then put them in this position where they happen to own a house and younger people can't afford to buy a house. So my argument is this isn't their fault, but it's kind of interesting because the boomers have been pathologized to such an extent that you get books like called A Generation of Sociopaths by Bruce Cannon Gibney, who's <laughs> a Generation Xer, I think. I think he's a Generation Xer. And uh, he's also a venture capitalist. So he's not a sort of a victim of capitalism. But he writes this this book seriously arguing that there was something wrong in the baby boomer mentality, that they just lacked empathy, that they didn't care. And that's why the world we live in now has got so many problems. And so it's a displacement of political and policy choices onto this kind of this notion of the generation. Reckless, yeah. Because the baby boomers were associated with experimentation and that's what the 60s was about. The 60s was about kind of the corrosion of the old norms and values and institutions and a more kind of experimental approach to to life. And obviously it has its caricature in the counterculture, you know, if you're thinking about communes and LSD and, you know, that sort of sense of tuning dropout, all of that paraphernalia of the 60s. But this was a very, very, very small part of the demographic at the time. What was going on more broadly at that time was, I think, that sense of optimism and the sense that actually we could remake the world and that young people had a, a role to play in that. 
and that sense of um, individuals being both trusted to make their own decisions about whether to marry. Yeah, I mean, decisions that don't seem to be that big a deal to us today, but you know, were controversial at the time, whether to marry, whether to have an abortion, whether to be homosexual, you know, these were all things that, that, that were given to individuals as choices that they could make. And there was that sense of trying to make the good society. Now, I don't think that was always done in the right way, but I think there was a sense that what people wanted to do was uh, create culture, to uh, foster debate and dissent and, and all of these things. And then now that whole spirit is looked back on from the standpoint of the world post-global financial crisis um, as the reason why everything then went wrong, which again, I think is a, a appalling kind of misunderstanding of economic trends and policy choices. The boomers are prominent and self-aware, so much so that they have cast a shadow over subsequent history. Are we now living in the boomers' world, the world they created? It seems so, but for how long? And what of the pandemic? As the coronavirus was deadly in the most part for the elderly, many of the baby boomer generation have died. On the other hand, it could be argued that the lockdowns were designed mainly to protect them, the elderly, who would be most vulnerable to the disease. Amidst all this discussion of the so-called lucky boomers, we should ask ourselves, what happens when that generation dies and their wealth is transferred down to millennials and more immediately to Generation X? Indeed, we often neglect the cohort born after the baby boom, sometime after the mid-60s. This is a generation that is identified with irony, cynicism, and whatever. It's the generation of the end of history, when grand social ambitions, grand dreams, and grand narratives came to an end. In the fourth episode of this series, we'll look at the generation of the end, another lost generation, Generation X and examine new endings and new beginnings beyond the West when we look at the impact of the Iranian Revolution on generations either side of it and the fall of the Soviet Union and Russia. That's next time on OK Boonger, The Problem of Generations. Thank you for listening. This series is produced by Philip Cunliffe, George Hoare, and Alex Hochuli. Original music is by Johnny Mundy. This episode's guests have been, in order of appearance, Jenny Bristow, Helen Andrews, Josh Glenn, Jeffrey Alexander, Paul Gernary, and Kristen Ross. And the narrator is myself, Alex Hochuli. For access to everything Alpha Boonga Boonga, including bonus content, original subscriber-only episodes, and our monthly reading clubs, join us at patreon.com slash bungacast. Okay, Boonger, The Problem of Generations, is back with another episode next week. See you then.